0: Warning. Some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi everyone, welcome to Cults & Crime, a true crime podcast covering cults, crime, and everything in between. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. We did something a little bit different last time. We asked you, the listeners, to try to decipher our clues and what our next episode is going to be about, and you guys got it. That's right, guys. We're talking about Jerry Brudos, also known as the Lust Killer, and also known as the Shoe Fetish Slayer. Jerry Brutus was born in Webster, South Dakota, right in the middle of the Great Depression, just like many hard-working Americans, Jerry's father had a really hard time finding good work. The family moved around quite a bit, and in Jerry's childhood, he moved from house to house and from school to school, never feeling secure in his home life. Jerry was the youngest of two sons, and his father worked two jobs. He had very little time to spend time with his sons, and the mom was the main caregiver for the house, which is very common back then. I did read somewhere that his mom really wanted a girl, and Jerry being the youngest, obviously ended up a boy. This made his mom really upset, and she resented him for it. His mom would constantly belittle him, as well as both mentally and physically abuse him. Jerry became interested in ladies' footwear at the early age of five. He was playing around in the junkyard, which by the way, totally normal. (laughs) As all kids do. As all kids do, playing around in a junkyard. He found a spiked high heel, took it home, and began to play with it. When his mom discovered she was playing with the shoe, he punished him severely and demanded he get rid of it. But that didn't stop Jerry. Instead of destroying the shoe, he hid it and and continued to play with it. When his mom discovered that he had not done as she asked, she became enraged and ended up burning the shoe right in front of him. This, I think, was an attempt to get him to just stop. I feel like this is a really extreme reaction. I do too. And, you know, for a five-year-old to be playing around with a woman's shoe, I don't think that's weird. Like, there's tons of videos out there of little boys walking around in their mom's high heels. But for whatever reason, this enraged her. And her burning the shoe did not stop him. There was even one account where he attempted to steal his first grade's teacher's shoes. Like, off her feet? No, not right off her feet. (laughs) At the age of 16, he had two teenage girls move in right next door to him, and he quickly grew obsessed with the pair, going as far as to steal their underwear. Was this the first reported case of him stealing women's underwear? Yes, this is the very first case, and this is 16, so I think this is when he starts relating it to his sexual need. The police were called in to investigate this and Jerry felt like this was his chance. He told a neighborhood girl he was working with the police and lured her into his home. He went to another room and then came back, this time with a black mask on. At knife point he told her he would kill her unless she gave in to his sexual demands. He forced the poor girl to remove all of her clothing while he took photos of her naked body. He left the room but then came back, this time without the mask while the girl was undressing and he had claimed that he wasn't the guy that attacked her that someone had locked her inside of the barn the girl maybe being too scared or believing him when it wasn't him did not press any charges i do think that this made jerry bolder, because one night giving a neighborhood girl a ride home he stopped in an abandoned farm this is where he told the girl to strip but when she refused he became enraged and started to beat her a couple driving by had noticed the struggle and they called the police. He was caught and then sent to the psychiatric ward of the Oregon State Police Hospital for a total of nine months. There, he told the psychiatrist all about his fantasies. See, Jerry had an ultimate dream. This dream was to have his own underground secret bunker where it could house all the girls that he would kidnap. This bunker would have multiple cells where he could pull out a different girl whenever he wanted to. After explaining to the psychiatrist all about his desires and needs, they diagnosed him with schizophrenia and then claimed that all of his sexual fantasies was because of extreme hatred for his mom. This hatred for his mom had then morphed to hatred for all women. But somehow, even with being admitted into the hospital, he was allowed to go to school during the day. And all he had to do was go back to the hospital at night. What? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, that's just so crazy to me. He's having fantasies about imprisoning, like, mass imprisonments of women. And they're like, you know what, you need to be around a bunch of other kids. Female children, like, they didn't care about their safety at all. No, and I have absolutely no idea why they would do this. Well, it's the Brock Turner thing where, it's, what about his future? Oh, yeah, let's worry about the poor psychopath killer. He wasn't a killer at the time, but yeah. Jerry did graduate just shortly after the rest of his class and attempted to become an electrician. He didn't succeed at this job, so he turned to the army. While he was in the army, he began to have dreams and fantasies about all the things he wanted to do all along, and then even started to see things that weren't there. He decided to visit the base psychiatrist, and that's where they decided to discharge him, claiming it wasn't safe for him to continue being in the army. After his discharge with nowhere to go, he decided to move back in with his mother. She didn't exactly give him the warm welcome she would expect from a mom, but only allowed him to sleep in the shed in the backyard. This, I think, made him relapse because he began shortly after to steal women's shoes and underwear all over again. However, this began to not have the same effect on him any longer. He needed more. Still a virgin, he wasn't really sure at this point how. This is where he met his wife, Darcy working at a radio station. And when she became pregnant, her parents consented for her and Jerry to marry. But Jerry had some requirements of his wife. He required her to do all of the housework and cooking naked, except for a pair of high heels. He then would take pictures of her. These pictures were in various stages of her dressed and undressed. Some even had her wearing the same clothes that he had stolen from other women. It was at this time that he began complaining of migraines and headaches and blackouts. Not getting enough attention from his wife, he began leaving presents around the house. Do you want to guess what those presents are? Um, Jewelry, chocolates, and clothing. (laughs) A nice robe for her to wear while she's cleaning so she doesn't get a cold. (laughs) No, not even close. He would leave pictures for her. In these pictures, he would be wearing ladies' undergarments. And he would hide them throughout the house for her to find. So... Was this supposed to be something to give her some sort of joy or pleasure? Or was it him, like he wanted her to find out his secret kind of thing? I think this was a cry for attention. Oh yeah, definitely a cry for attention. Yeah, but Darcy ignored them. She did go along with this for a long time, but after Jerry had a hard time finding work, Darcy had enough, and she started sticking up for herself, refusing to dress up for him any longer. Yeah, why am I cleaning naked if you don't even have a job? Well, they got married pretty young. Darcy was only 17 when they got married. So she had little experience. And from what I read, she kind of just assumed that, that was this is normal. She didn't have any friends or, like, family members she could ask? Well, back then, you don't talk. We're not so open about sex as we are now. Like, now we all talk about, you know, we all talk about it so casually. But back then, you don't talk about it. Yeah. They wouldn't even show pictures of, you know a queen-size bed in films. I've never heard of that before. Well, if you if you watch their Brady Bunch, in the bedroom, they're two twin-size beds. They're not a queen-size bed. They don't even want to insinuate that they sleep in the same bed a married couple. That's how repressed it was back then. But after Jerry's needs were no longer met by his wife, he began sneaking away at night and going into the neighbor's houses. This time, he would steal their shoes and other lacy undergarments. He would then keep all of these souvenirs in a garage and later, his victim's bodies. He wouldn't allow his wife to go into the garage unless she announced herself via the intercom. This intercom Jerry had set up himself. Let's not talk about what a red flag that would be. I feel like there's a lot of red flags regarding like him and his wife. I'd be like Mrs. Incredible from The Incredibles movie. I'd be pretending to vacuum outside the door and then snoop in once I got inside. Well, she's lucky because she really could have found dead bodies. Jerry began killing in 1968. His very first victim was Linda Slauson, who was a door-to-door encyclopedia salesperson. Jerry lured her into the basement by telling her he was interested in buying a whole set. While his wife and kids were upstairs, he knocked her out with a wooden plank and strangled her. He then walked upstairs, gave his wife some money, and told her to take the kids out. So his wife watched this lady walk into their basement and her husband be like, you know what, honey? Here's $10, go get yourself a soda pop. I'm going to assume he didn't. she didn't see that. After the wife and kids left, he redressed her in different underwear and shoes that he had stolen. He then rearranged her body in provocative poses and took pictures of her. Then he sawed off her left foot and froze it. This frozen foot he later used to model off his high hill shoe collection. The rest of her body, he threw into the Wilmington River. A couple months later, he abducted Karen Springer, who was just 18 at the time. During this attack, he dressed up in woman's clothing and took her into his garage. This is where he forced her to dress up in his collection of underwear and pose while he photographed her. Then he raped her and strangled her by hanging her by her neck from a pulley. He then repeatedly sexually assaulted the body and cut off her breast to make plastic molds. To dispose of this body, he tied her to a six-cylinder car engine and threw her again into the Wilmington River. His next victim was Jane Whitley. She was driving home from Thanksgiving when her car broke down on the side of the road. Jerry had just happened to come across her and offered to give her a ride so she can call a tow truck. But instead of helping her, he strangled her with a leather strap and defiled her body multiple times. He then kept her body for several days, hanging in his garage where he dressed her up and photographed her while he repeatedly raped her body. He then cut off one of her breasts and made a mold. This mold he uses as a paper right around the house. again. Darcy, red flag, girl. Where did he get that boob mold? Yeah, like, were you letting him mold your breasts? This is another thing that makes me think that she just didn't care about the relationship at this point, where she saw this woman enter her home. Her husband's like, hey, you want to go get some ice cream? She does. I just think she didn't care. She didn't care if her husband was having access or interactions with other women. Maybe. Well, more interactions he's having with other women, less he's having with her. He did have two failed attempts at abduction. The first was Sharon Wood, who was 24. He had attempted to abduct her at gunpoint from the basement floor of the parking garage in Portland on April 21st, 1969. Just one day later, he tried to abduct Gloria Jean Smith, who was just 15. After this failed abduction, he finally succeeded, this time with Linda Sally, who's 22. He abducted her from a shopping parking lot on April 23rd, 1969. Brudos brought her to his garage where he raped and strangled her and then played with her corpse. He decided not to cut off her breasts because they were, and I quote, just too pink. And instead he decided to drive an electrical current through her body in the attempts to make it jump. Afterwards, he tied the body to a car's transmission with a nylon cord and threw it into the Wilmington River. Just as a quick side note, Brudos would dress up in high heels and masturbate after committing every single one of his murders. In 1969, a fisherman found the body of Sally and Sprinker in the Long Tum River. The police asked for students at a nearby university to let them know if there was any suspicious men around. This led them to Brunos. You see, Jerry was cold calling university students at the University of Oregon and asking girls out on blind dates. One girl that claimed to go on a blind date with Jerry had said that he would not stop calling her. And when he tried to reach out again, she informed police and they had them meet. The only thing was, instead of the girl, was the police. They questioned Jerry and he was very cooperative, but after detectives left, they checked his information and found he'd give a false address. That concerned police. And after looking into his past, they got a warrant to search his house. This is where they found a ton of evidence, including photos of his victims, During interrogation, Jerry admitted to four murders as well as several other assaults and abductions. He was charged with the murders and claimed insanity. However, the courts determined he was sane to stand trial. A lot of people did suspect that Darcy knew what was going on throughout these murders and the authorities must have thought so as well because they arrested and tried her as an accomplice. A neighbor even said they saw Darcy help Rudo's carry a victim. However, the neighbor's testimony was discredited and there was no other And there was no other evidence to prove darcy was in on the murders she also denied knowing anything about the killings and had since divorced jerry changed her name and moved her and her kids to an unknown location i totally understand why someone would think that she had to know at least something well obviously it's very weird in general that he has places in the house that she can't go to and he has molds of boobs as paperweights there is a lot of red flags I can only speculate that she's ignoring those because back then, you don't divorce your husband. You just deal with the weird crap. Yeah, and also she knows he has, like, a weird cross-dressing thing. Well, weird to her cross-dressing thing. And they're looking for a guy who was cross-dressing while attempting to kidnap the girls. Yeah, and she didn't say anything, which is another weird thing. Maybe she didn't hear about it, which I doubt because it was all very close to where they live. Yeah, I mean, I... I'm sure everyone was talking about it as the local gossip, you know? Yeah, I just assume that she didn't want to deal with it. Well, yeah, especially when someone's close to you, it's easier to believe that you're just making things up in your head than it is to believe that someone that you care about is a serial murderer. Exactly, I feel the same way. Jerry Brutos did eventually plead guilty to the murders of Sally, Sprinker, and Whitney, but he was never tried for Slauson. This was because the body wasn't yet found. And she was one of the only victims where he didn't take pictures of her. It was one of his earlier victims, right? The first one? That was his very first victim. The encyclopedia salesperson. Okay. Yeah, He so he was still forming his MO. Yeah, and he just progressed by taking pictures of his victims. Yeah, he had to keep feeding the fantasy and, like, tweaking it to get exactly what he wanted out of it. Yeah. I guess so. I, you know, I can't say that I know a lot about serial killer psyche and the progression other than what I see on TV. <laughs> well, we all just all the time wildly speculate. That's what, that's what podcasting's about. Wild speculation. <laughs> While incarcerated, Brutus had piles of women's shoe catalogs in his house. He wrote major companies asking for them and claimed they were a substitute for pornography. He lodged countless appeals including one in which he alleged that a photograph taken of him with one of his victims' corpses could not prove he was guilty. This was because it was not the body of a person he was convicted of killing. And in 1995, the parole board told Brito that he would never be released. Brito died in prison from liver cancer. This was the longest incarcerated inmate in Oregon Department's history at the time. All this sounds really familiar. Was he on the Mindhunter show? Yeah, he was a Mindhunter, uh, season one, episode seven and eight, he, and he was portrayed by the actor Happy Anderson. There's also an American extreme metal band called Bree that has a song about Jerry Brutus. Please tell me you have the lyrics for that. I do. Are you ready? I've never been more ready in my life. When Jerry Brutus, when Jerry Brutus was a young boy, that's when his strange behavior grew. Jerry Brutus had a fascination with women's undergarments and shoes. Jerry Brutus was a foot fetish killer, kept a lady's foot inside his freezer, dressed up in heels, and then he'd beat off Jerry Brutus, Jerry Brutus. Jerry married a girl, she got pregnant. His new wife didn't have a clue that Jerry Brutus would kill five women and keep one's foot to jack off two. Oh, so the very first part rhymed so much. It made me think of, like, Dr. Seuss. If someone has not made a Dr. Seuss about serial killers yet, I TM that. TM, TM, TM. You hear to hear, folks. We call dibs. Yeah, dibs. Creep- yeah, we call dibs on the creepy Dr. Seuss serial killer book. Yeah, patent pending. I do have a quick question that you may or may not have the answer to. So, I was reading an article recently about head trauma and violent behaviors. And it listed that there was a bunch of serial killers who had previous head traumas when they were children. Do you know if he had any head trauma growing up? So he was, you know, physically abused by his mother, but I don't know if that has any- anything to do with it. Alright, so that's the end of our episode, Jamie. This was a good one. I feel like it's always hard me to choose a case that has this much information out there to just try to condense it to the importance parts and weed out the speculation and wild theories. Yeah, there was not as much information as you would think on this case. I was actually quite surprised. A lot of it was condensed down to the horrible murders he committed and the things he did to the bodies. What upset me is I didn't feel like there was enough information about the victims. Well, it might have been a rape shield thing. Maybe. I don't know. I just feel like I would want to know who these women are well, yeah, but do those women want you to know who they are? Well, the women that are killed, their families, their children, you know, they died in a really horrific way. Yeah, so but that- I feel—I don't know, I guess it's like for me, it's hard for me to tell these stories about these poor women, because I want to know who they were. And I think that's what we should really focus on who these women were and what happened to them, not this killer, which it's so often, especially in social media, no one cares about the victims or no one's willing to put the information in about these victims. A lot of times, like, I lived overseas for quite a few years. And a lot of countries, when you live overseas, if there's a mass attack or anything like that, unless they're currently doing a manhunt for the person, they won't include information about him. They'll keep it all about the victims. Like, they won't even say his name. Yeah, and I don't feel like that's like that in America. Oh, no, America has kind of more of a sensationalist news outlet. Yeah, I can definitely agree to that. So I just think... The goal is to have a thin line because you want the public to have all the information they need or want. But you also want to be able to protect the victims and their families. You want to try to remember them for the good stuff. You know, making cookies on Sunday mornings, going to the park, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I could, definitely understand and feel for the victims of this case and their families. This is gruesome, especially what he did to the bodies afterwards. It's a really discouraging portion of these type of acts is the just dismemberment and discare after the fact like you've already taken this person's life now you're going to take their dignity well that's what they speculate he really wanted he wanted to be powerful over these females and by stealing their clothes and then eventually taking pictures of them without them wanting them to be taken pictures of and murdering them and then continue to defile his bodies it was all about having control over these women for him It's a fairly common practice with people that are at this level where they will remove the sexual organs of women to further dehumanize them. You know, I I read once that the idea is, to them, the one thing that makes women special are their sexual organs. The one thing that gives women power over men are their sexual organs. So by removing those organs, they get to take that power back. Obviously, this is a really sick, twisted untrue thing that only a sick twisted person would think but yeah and i can definitely agree to that one all right jamie so we will be hope we will be moving from crime to cult in our next episode and jamie do you have any special hints for us for us to guess about what we're talking about i do have two hints for you guys the first one is korea the second is marriage All right. I have absolutely no idea what we're going to be talking about, but I am very excited. I think it's going to interest a lot of people. I'm sure it will. So we'll see you guys next Monday with a brand new episode. Hey, cult and crime fans. If you like listening to us discuss charismatic leaders and husbands who definitely did it, Then one of the easiest ways for you to support us is by subscribing to us on whatever listening platform you're using and giving us a five-star review. We love all of our listeners. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by The 129ers.